you've given me some hope, which I think is not what I expected at the end of this conversation. So I'm really, really pleased by that. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by the difference between a hurricane and a cyclone and the many other terms. So we're going to be talking about hurricanes and cyclones. Can either of you explain to me what the difference is? I'm turning to Amruta. <laughs> so hurricanes are the things that happen in the Atlantic Basin and cyclones are the things that happen in the Pacific Basin. But this paper <laughs> talks about hurricanes and cyclones. They're and used it's all basically the interchangeably. <laughs> and differentiates on the basis of wind speed. Yeah, right? so yeah. that you can do tropical storms, you can do hurricanes. That's differentiated based on the wind speed. Yeah. Is it fair, though, that I'm confused? Yes, Okay. absolutely I just, fair. I, this one stumped me because I, every time I tried to look it up, I would get different definitions. And I had heard exactly what you said about the Atlantic and the Pacific, but this paper is solely about the U.S. and it talks about cyclones and hurricanes. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> anyway, uh -oh. <laughs> I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health from the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am joined once again by friend and co-host, Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health here at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Jess. Thanks, Matt. And we have a fantastic guest today, Dr. Amrutha Nori Sarma, also from the Department of Environmental Health here at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Amrutha. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you. So as a reminder to everyone, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. And also a reminder to go onto your favorite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you use, and give us a, a rating. It really helps other people find us. And I also want to announce that we are kicking off a series of podcast episodes that we are going to be doing which are being done in relation to the Boston University School of Public Health strategic research direction. So these are a series of research areas that our School of Public Health has strengthened and is interested in investing in growing. Those areas are cities and health, climate, the planet and health, health inequities, infectious diseases, and mental and behavioral health. And so today we are going to be focused on that climate, the planet, and health segment. And that gets us to our topic for today. So on to the show. So in our first segment, that's our journal club, we're going to talk about a study on the effects of tropical cyclones and mortality in the U.S. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about why a hotter world is affecting different people and different places in different ways. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud or just really interested us. So segment one. So we're talking about an article that looked at the effects of tropical cyclones on mortality. It was published in JAMA. And it was entitled Association of Tropical Cyclones with County Level Mortality in the U.S. by first author Robbie Parks of the Department of Environmental Health Sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. Some headlines on this one. So The Hill says hurricanes linked to 33% surge in death rates after storms. USNews.com says more hurricanes mean rising death tolls for Americans. And Yahoo says hidden burden. Hurricanes keep killing people long after landfall study suggests. Mm -hmm. I always like the study suggests 
implying that they may have their doubts. I don't know. I don't have doubts. But so Jess, can you can you walk us through this study and what they did and what they found? I can. So this was a really interesting study and thanks to Amrita for bringing it to our attention as it's different from some of the studies we've talked about in the podcast before. So as as many of us are familiar with, there's a good deal of literature and media and other reporting kind of detailing immediate public health consequences of hurricanes and cyclones in the immediate aftermath as these events are happening and in the immediate aftermath including increased hospital admissions and then consequences for employment, for schooling, mental health, for the economy, and other sorts of things in the immediate time, both during and the immediate aftermath of a hurricane in the United States. Um, But much less is focused on these longer-term effects of hurricanes and cyclones, which these authors are calling the indirect associations, specifically indirect associations with mortality or associated mortality with a time lag after an initial extreme weather event like a hurricane or cyclone. So that is what these authors are looking at. They're considering cause-specific consequences, cause-specific mortality of tropical cyclones in the United States, and they considered stratification by a number of factors, by age group, by gender, and by socioeconomic vulnerability. And this this article, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it in more detail, but one of the things that I thought was particularly elegant is that they did not use a tremendous number of confounding variables or yep. stratification variables, and they kind of kept it fairly straightforward. They had complicated mathematical approaches and statistical approaches, but the essence of the model was pretty simple. What they were looking at was the cause-specific mortality associated with hurricanes and cyclones with a time lag in the United States. They looked at weather data and mortality data on the county level in the United States from 1988 to 2018, so a 31-year period, to evaluate the uh, whether exposure to a tropical cyclone on the county level was associated with increase in county-level cause-specific death rates in the months following this weather event. This was a retrospective observational analysis, and counties were included in the study if they'd experienced at least one tropical cyclone event during the study period. The death data, including um, the number of deaths, the county of residence, and the date and the cause of death were derived from the National Center for Health Statistics. And they reported mortality from seven causes, from cancer, cardiovascular disease, infection and parasitic disease, injuries, neuropsychiatric conditions, respiratory diseases, and their final category just of other diseases. And then the other disease category they did not include in their analyses because it was considered to be too diverse in terms of those other causes. They looked at social vulnerability on the county level using the CDC's Social Vulnerability Index, the SVI, that many of us in environmental health use across many different studies. And the SVI is an index that includes data effectively derived from the census on socioeconomic status, household size, minority status, and other sorts of factors that can be related to social vulnerability. Cyclones, their core exposure, were defined on the basis of wind speed. We were talking about this a little bit earlier and characterized by county affected and month into either tropical cyclones, which were characterized as greater than 34 knots wind speed or hurricanes, which were the bigger ones, greater than 64 knots of wind speed. They also looked at temperature, mean temperature by month using the PRISM climate mapping system in a sensitivity analysis. So their core statistical approach, they took this Bayesian formulation, which we can talk 
talk about a little bit later, Bayesian formulation of a conditional quasi-Poisson model, including lag terms up to six months after the cyclone itself. And what this approach did, which is very interesting on a kind of conceptual, intuitive level, is it allows for the comparisons of death rate across the same month in other years, controlling for the various factors that they have in their model, so socioeconomic status and other potential confounders that would more or less remain static by county with the exception over time with the exception of the weather event. And the Bayesian approach allows for kind of incorporation of a distribution around a given estimate, which allows them to add some robustness to the model estimates. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about some of these approaches and pros and cons. The output of the model is the additional death rate. So they, they model the incremental additional death rate associated with one additional county level cyclone day per month. And they also estimated actual deaths associated with these weather events. And they stratified the results by various factors, as I talked about. They also used the credible interval, which I'll look to Matt also to talk about, mm -hmm. um, which is used in Bayesian analyses, reflecting the posterior probability distribution instead of the confidence interval, and which is associated to have more randomness to it. But we can we can talk about that as well. Mm -hmm. And so they were presenting these estimates alongside the credible interval. They included about 1,200 counties in their analysis, which reflected a little less than 50% of the U.S. population during their 31-year study period that experienced at least one cyclone event over this period of time. And they overall, they found a positive association between exposure to cyclone hurricanes and the overall death rate by county with the strongest effect seen for death rates from injuries over this time period. And so interestingly, and I, I think the injury was kind of one of their key one of their key findings, and they, although they looked across these six other outcomes. So there, the mortality rate associated with cyclone for injury peaked one month after the cyclone, and they found it was a 3.7 increase in the death rate associated with one additional day of exposure to cyclone. So that's a 3.7 increase in death rate from injury associated with a one additional day cyclone exposure on the county level. So it's a bit of a mouthful. 3.7%? Percent. 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 Yep. Sorry, 3.7% increase in the death rate rate associated with one additional day of cyclone exposure on the county level, which they estimated resulted in a predicted 55 additional deaths per month associated with the cyclone by injury. And so injury was the big finding here, that it was highest among people over 65 in the first two months after the cyclone event, and also higher in females compared to males. The death rate from injury was most pronounced in the most vulnerable SVI tertiles. They looked at um, the social vulnerability indexes and tertiles compared to the lowest tertile, with the difference also peaking in the first month after the cyclone. And they saw also a particularly strong effect as it related to injury from hurricane compared to cyclone exposure with a more than three times the risk of injury from death from a hurricane compared to a cyclone. They also found increased death rates from most of the other causes that they looked at, including infectious and parasitic diseases and respiratory disease rates, which peaked one month after the cyclone or hurricane event, although the marginal increases in the death rate were quite a bit smaller. 
But they did see a stronger effect for hurricane versus cyclone in this few month period following the actual event. Similarly to cardiovascular disease and neuropsychiatric conditions, death rates associated with these two factors also were increased in the one month and some of them in the second month after cyclones and hurricanes, but at a much smaller rate than injury. And they saw no association with with cancer. They saw no change in cancer mortality associated with these exposures. So the authors concluded that there is an association between cyclones and hurricanes and specific cause mortality in these affected counties with their specific positive association focused on death from injury, but they did note other increases in death associated with other conditions, specifically infectious and parasitic disease, cardiovascular disease, and a smaller effect associated with neuropsychiatric conditions resulting in death. So a lot going on here. And in some ways, I would say some of this is probably not particularly surprising. I mean, finding out that injuries, uh, death-related injuries after tropical cyclones is not particularly surprising, although it's one of those things that you really need to quantify, whereas some of the other findings I actually think are are maybe not surprising, but but are pretty interesting. And I think in in chatting beforehand, I think we all felt like this was a, a good study that we we liked it. We could find some things to critique about it. But Amrita, what's your what's your take on this study? What did you like? What did you not like? So yeah, I think this is a really fantastic study. I think that the area of research looking at the health implications, both morbidity and mortality implications of extreme weather events is a relatively new area of research. And one of the things that I think is really exciting is that we've been able to, you know, as a field, generate a lot of data on the exposure side. So I just want to focus on that piece for Mm -hmm. a minute, because I think one of the challenges in climate and health research is that there don't exist these very nicely packaged pre-existing definitions of what constitutes an extreme weather event. And a lot of times we do have to rely on a lot of disparate data sources to come up with combinations of things that might be relevant when we're talking about different types of extreme weather. So in the hurricane example, you know, what Robbie has done really well in this paper and what he and his collaborators have discussed quite in depth is that they've used these wind speed metrics to determine what is a tropical cyclone, what is a hurricane. Some other examples that we might think about in terms of hurricane exposures might be things like flooding, extreme precipitation. So there's a whole host of different exposures that are very relevant when you're referring to an extreme storm event. And so what I think they've been able to do really nicely is assign their exposure metric at the different levels that are of interest. So looking at lower wind speeds and lower wind frequencies to to define the tropical cyclone and then the higher wind speed to define the hurricane. And then, so you kind of get this really nice dose response. So you're looking at, you know, what is the increase in the mortalities that are occurring as a result of exposure to tropical cyclones compared to hurricanes. And so I think that provides us with, with a really nice context of, okay, here's how we see differences in the mortality impacts across these different types of severe exposures for extreme weather. And so I think that's a really nice characteristic of this paper. And in terms of the methods that they've used, I actually, I I really do like the conditional model that they've used and the framework that they've set up. I think it lends itself really nicely to dealing with some of the issues that we think about when we're looking at the best control days to compare with the extreme weather event days. And this is another feature of climate epidemiology that I think can be relatively challenging is how do you actually try to come to some sort of causal inference regarding the relationship between the extreme exposure and the health outcome that you're interested in looking at. And so I think that what they've been able to do in this framework is they've been able to match 
the case counties with control counties that have a lot of the same time varying characteristics and also a lot of the same potential features of the populations that are being studied over the course of time as well. And so this is another one of the things that we were maybe discussing briefly in the beginning or before and talking beforehand. But I, I do think that the matching strategy that they've used allows us to start to make some of these linkages between the exposure of interest and the mortality outcomes that we're interested in. So uh, that's fascinating. So can either of you tell me, is this ecologic data or is this patient, you know, not patient level, individual level data? I mean, it, it feels to me like it's, it's ecologic, meaning it's, it's, we're just looking at uh, overall summaries of what's happening in a particular county. On the other hand, they know all the people in the particular county, you know, they have you know, the population and therefore they can relate it to an actual rate where you could create individual records. I, I, I struggled a little bit trying to figure that out. My understanding is that this was uh, this would be considered ecological data because they're not using individual level exposure data. They have individual level death data that then is attributed to the county. Mm-hmm. So is scaled up to the geographic unit and the exposure likewise is scaled to that same geographic unit, not to the individual. So all of the individuals within the county share the same exposure mm-hmm. data. Does that, but does, so does, that's a question. Does that, that I don't think yeah. that in and of itself means it couldn't be, I mean, I agree yeah, with that. That's okay, where I okay. sort of that's, that's was going would, with yeah, it. Certainly yeah. the, the exposure, it's the same, but I mean, that would be true. Let's say if we did a cluster randomized trial with individuals, everybody would get the same exposure within a, a unit. We'd still wouldn't call that ecologic. So I, I, I struggle with this one. The confounders that they used are not specific to the individual, right? Mm-hmm, so right. Th- they were not adjusting for whether I personally am older or younger or, you know, those sorts of things are, I think, being done at the the level of the county. So mm-hmm. that would suggest ecologic. On the other hand, I I just, I wasn't totally sure. I'm not sure it matters, but I'm just pointing out, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't suss that out. I, I actually tend to think of this study design. And there are a few other study designs that I think are becoming more popular in the world of climate epidemiology. The other one would be the case crossover study design, for example. I I tend to think of these as ecologic analyses. I think, you know, you're able to aggregate individual level data at the county level, as Jessica was mentioning earlier, in order to make use of differences in exposures at that larger spatial unit that I think would be very, very difficult to do at the individual level assigning specific exposures. And functionally, when we're talking about a hurricane exposure, if you're in a county that has a hurricane, you're in a county that has a hurricane. Functionally, in order to be able to leverage individual data, we would expect that there would be some differential in the exposure, right? If we wanted to take it down to the even more disaggregated unit. But in this case, if you live in a county with a hurricane then, then you're exposed to the hurricane. So, you know, you can think of other study designs that have been used to study more spatially varying exposures that might be of interest, especially in the climate world. And in that case, I think it does make sense to take into consideration, is this an individual level study versus is this an ecologic level study? And I guess in this context, it's not really clear to me that we would gain any benefit from using specific individual level data. So let me, let me, and I, I think that's a really good answer. I, I suppose though, you aren't necessarily exposed just because you live in the county, right? I mean, in fact, they talk about that in their discussion. I mean, right. some people leave the county, leave the county when yeah. there's a hurricane coming right. and those right. people are not technically exposed. Mm-hmm. And then you could you could talk about a different exposure, which isn't specifically the hurricane happened or it didn't. Mm-hmm. You could talk about your individual 
level exposure in the sense of, you know, some people live in housing that right. would be more vulnerable mm-hmm. at the time. So, so there's different ways you could play it out, but I, I take your general point. I mean, I, I do get the idea that it does make sense that it is a, you know, it's reasonable to think of everybody in the County as being exposed, even if they aren't necessarily. Right. And I think that the other thing that I would differentiate maybe in what you were just saying is that it is true that there may be some folks who have characteristics at the individual level that make them more vulnerable during the period of hurricane. But I think that's an important thing to distinguish from whether or not people are getting exposed to the hurricane itself. Yeah. And you could, you could also just think of it as the hurricane is the exposure. And then there right. are mediators exactly. that would protect you like, you know, like moving what, out or right. type of housing or right. all those things. I had a question, I guess sure. I have two questions. Mm-hmm. One of them relates to the topic you just brought up, which is the idea that people often leave after a mm-hmm. hurricane. And I was wondering- Or before, Mm -hmm. or before. But I was thinking specifically about people who might experience the hurricane and then leave Mm -hmm. because schools are closed or their house is flooded. And so they're exposed. Mm -hmm. But then if they experience a mortality endpoint, it's somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And I I, I didn't quite get the sense as to how the authors characterize that because that would lead to, I mean, that seems to be that that would be some sort of misclassification that their Mm -hmm. death would be misclassified as a county potentially unexposed Mm -hmm. to the hurricane, Mm -hmm. but their death was due to the hurricane. And, and my understanding is there's, there's a lot of mobility post huge weather event, which could before and after, but that could really lead to an underestimate of yeah, I think associations. Yeah, and I think that they do address that as one of the major limitations that they're they're making the assumption that this is an underestimate of the actual burden of mortality associated with these hurricane periods. And I think that's a really excellent question and I think it brings up a lot of really interesting components of vulnerability that we don't really have a good way of getting at because, you know, and and this is something that I think is a feature of studies like this that are looking across these longer periods of time and looking across multiple hurricane events. So some of the work that you mentioned when you were talking in the introduction and just introducing the paper has been studies, for example, you know, Hurricane Katrina is very famous, also Superstorm Sandy, have been studies that have been focused on these particular extreme events and looking at what happens during the event and in the the immediate aftermath of the event. And so I think one of the things that we gain is the power to look at these differences across different, you know, potential, you know, effect modifiers that we've seen in this study, we gain that ability because we're able to look across all of these different storms, which we may not be able to do if we looked at a single storm event. But, you know, in order to be able to really track people and say, okay, can we look at who's moving and who's staying put and what are the differentials and health outcomes between those folks that really requires a more in-depth focus on one particular storm event. And so I think there are trade-offs and, and maybe going back to what we were saying before about discussing the pros and cons of this type of study design, we definitely aren't able to, you know, another thing that I could think of as a potential limitation of this study is that we're not looking at subclinical outcomes. We're not looking at all of the different different impacts that are happening that are short of somebody passing away because of their exposure to a hurricane, for example. So I think there are, there are definitely pros and cons to this study design. Can I ask you another question? Sure. My question in this format as well is kind of, you know, when you look at these studies that just look at mortality across Mm -hmm. different types of mortality, what I always think about is for each of those endpoints, there are different biological pathways that Mm -hmm. would link exposure to an extreme weather event 
and death. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have to, I, I think in this literature, there's a good amount of understanding about injury mm -hmm. and about mental health in particular, that those could be two consequences. You could see people are struggling to rebuild and there's an injury and that's kind of one pathway. And then there's obviously a lot of stress that could be associated. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges I thought was kind of looking at, at multi, not all cause, but multi-cause mortality from this one event. And then thinking through the biology of each of these endpoints, specifically where they had this finding that cancer, death from cancer did not change mm -hmm. as a result of these events. And that was counterintuitive to me because I would expect that it would relate to treatment access, that people who had cancer were, that their treatment was disrupted in a way that was not good. And so in that, that, that was a little counterintuitive to me because I would expect that some of these other, some of these other death outcomes would link, would be associated with limited access to treatment during an extreme weather, during, during and after an extreme weather event. It's, it's interesting that you say that because I went in the exact opposite direction mm -hmm. with cancer. I actually thought the cancer was in, I don't know why they put it in there, but I thought it was in there specifically to deal with the concerns that we had around confounding. Because you're right that, that obviously if there is a extreme weather event, there will potentially be disruptions. But I, I don't know that those disruptions are going to be long enough for a large enough sector of the population that you would expect it to impact cancer outcomes. And so I thought it was in there to demonstrate the fact that we don't see an effect on cancer outcomes would suggest that the effects that we're seeing, the other effects that we're seeing are, are not explained by just confounding. Or, or by access to, so that you're saying that you, th you, you interpreted it as if treatment was not disrupted enough so that the causes that you could think about were not due to lack of treatment. Yeah. And, and as such, it makes the other findings more believable because mm -hmm. we wouldn't expect a difference in, in cancer related to a hurricane. Right. I, I, I think would I have, had no you I, I would have I would have expected I, I if there no if there was limited access to treatment I would have expected no you did not I I think yeah. I I felt the same way I think I I believed that the reason why cancer was included is because if we did see meaningful differences in cancer post hurricane exposures then we would expect that a lot of these results that we're seeing are not because of the hurricane exposure itself. It's because of that disruption to care that happens in the wake of a hurricane. And I do think that this is, this is a really interesting question. Some of the implications that I see that I think are very interesting in that is that by using this distributed lag structure in this model, we're able to look at not just the immediate aftermath of the hurricane, we're able to look at extended periods after the hurricane. And so I think, you know, seeing the bumps that happen in mortality rates in like a six month lag, looking two months out from a hurricane and seeing increases in infectious disease outbreaks that, I mean, it all kind of tracks to yeah, me. Yeah, it does. I thought that was, I mean, my, my initial skepticism with the lag model was, you know, are, do we really expecting to see, uh, you know, a, 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 an effect of a, a cyclone six months later on, you know, something like cardiovascular events? I was not, but then I realized, no, that's the point. That's what mm -hmm. they're trying to show here is that the increases that you're observing are actually following kind of the expected pattern. Mm -hmm. Maybe the magnitude is off a little bit, but the pattern makes a lot of sense that the particularly with injuries, you see the effects right away mm -hmm. with some of the other events. You see a little bit of a delay, but not much. Mm -hmm. And then sort of things come back to normal. Mm -hmm. uh, one question I did want to ask is my understanding here is this is a, a Poisson model. So it's a, it's a, it's fitting relative estimates, right? So mm -hmm. these 3.5%, that's a 3.5% relative increase, mm -hmm. right? Yes. It, I mean, it, this is just sort of my 
general annoyance with the models that we use, but it seems to me that the absolute matters here. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'd actually mm-hmm. want to know how much absolute increase is there in, in mortality and, you know, quite get that from this. They do present some absolute estimates mm-hmm. yeah, deeper in do. the text, deeper mm-hmm. in the text, but they were, they're, they're much, they're small. Mm-hmm. Some of them are less than one person or kind of 0.3 to 0.6 estimated increased deaths. You know, so they are small absolute effects for many of these, except for injury. injury except for injuries. And, and, and a lot of it is you, would, you wouldn't expect a, a large right. absolute increase because the absolute number of deaths isn't, isn't, isn't massive, right. mm-hmm. but it's, it's real. Right. And I just want to make a couple of additional points on that. The first one is just, again, going back to what we were mentioning earlier is potentially one of the limitations of this paper. You know, deaths is the most extreme outcome that happens during hurricane. So there could be a lot of other clinical outcomes that are highly relevant that we're not fully capturing in this version of this study. You know, you could imagine looking across all of the patients who are having increases in emergency department visits for cardiovascular disease or for neuropsychiatric disorders. And then the other thing that I want to mention is that in the, in the context of the climate and health literature, we are interested in the impacts today, but we're also interested in the implications for future impacts as we see more frequent storms that are more severe and longer lasting in duration. So I think if you take the implications for mortality outcomes or morbidity outcomes today, I think it provides us with a framework for what we would expect to see under a climate change scenario in the future. So, you know, current impacts might be small. We might expect those to expand in the future. So those were the two points that I wanted to bring up. Agreed. And I I do also want to clarify that it is worth remembering their model is per day of increase. So we're not talking about event versus no event. Exactly. For one additional Mm -hmm. day. So 10 additional days, you know, would increase things even more. So Mm -hmm. just worth putting those numbers into context. Any last points anyone wants to raise about this study before we move on? I wanted to ask a question of the two of you. Why was this a JAMA paper? What about this? What about this analysis in particular made it worthy of JAMA? Because in general, there are not that many environmental health studies published in JAMA. Most things are medical kind of, you know, clinical trials or things along those lines. And so it's more unusual in our field to have a paper like this published in JAMA. And I was wondering, what was it that you think stood out most with this one? I think that there is a rising awareness of the importance of climate relevant extreme weather exposures and the impacts on different health outcomes. And I think that this study is particularly well done in terms of the the modeling framework that they've put together in terms of the data that they've leveraged in terms of the fancy maps that they've made and the way that they've taken into consideration indicators of particularly vulnerable populations like the elderly and people living in higher SVI areas. And so I think that it brings together a lot of the different attributes that we're most concerned about when we're looking at the relationship between climate extremes and health outcomes. And I think for that reason, it has a lot of clinical relevance and a lot of implications for treating people who are exposed to these extreme weather events. And I think that's what makes it a JAMA paper. Me too. I, I think it's exactly that. I think it's 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 a very well done paper. I mean, it has limitations as we talked about, but it's, right. it's a very well done paper. And it's a topic that I think is so 
timely and on, on uh, of interest. I mean, we could talk about it in a second, but there was a Supreme Court ruling today about the EPA's ability to regulate the the coal industries, et cetera. I, I think this is a topic that people care a lot about. And, and mm-hmm. in addition to being good work, was well-placed to get headlines. And then I think that's why it's a, a JAMA paper. All right. I want to, before we move on, I just want to point out, I, I did look it up. And from what I found, they make a distinction, or there are three terms, uh, cyclone, typhoon, and hurricane. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what I read is hurricane is a cyclone that is in the North Atlantic Ocean or the Northeast Pacific, east of the International Dateline, or the South Pacific, east of 160 east, and with sustained winds that reach or exceed 74 miles per hour. So then what is a typhoon? <laughs> I don't know. There you I'm go. Stumped. I don't I'm know. Stumped. I, I'm stumped. I... I wouldn't we'll venture a guess. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm these, these, I'm totally lost. I think I, they're all, I think it's safe to say that they're all bad storms. Bad. Mm. Yep. Yep. I also want to recommend that people go, you know, you can't do this on a podcast, but there are some maps in here that are really, really informative. I mean, you can just sort of, a picture is worth a thousand words. You look at these right away and you can see the areas of the United States that are most prone to cyclones and then also prone to, to hurricanes. And, Surprisingly enough, we here in Massachusetts are actually, we're not the, we're not in the dark red area, but we're in there. And mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, you live here, you know that, but you don't, you don't think of the North of the United States as being in the, in the pathway, but we also are. Also commending just the figures for the students who are our yeah. listeners to come check these out because they are really, it's really easy to look at the figures and mm-hmm. very quickly glean their core points. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought they were really well done. Yep. Okay, so for our second segment, we're, as I said, we're going to be following up on this uh, strategic research directions area, focus areas of the School of Public Health here. And so we're going to talk a little bit about this article in the New York Times called A Hotter World, Climate Change's Effects Are Already Unequal by German Lopez. And it was published on June 2nd of, of 2022. And, you know, this, I would say this article makes a lot of points that I think probably many of us are aware of, but just making very clear that those who have contributed most to global warming, namely us, are not the ones who are necessarily suffering the greatest consequences of global warming. So they they specifically talk about India, talking about it's home to 18% of the world's population, has emitted only 3% of the planet's greenhouse gases, but is suffering from climate change in, in very dramatic ways. So over the past three months, a heat wave has devastated North India and Pakistan with temperatures surpassing 110 degrees Fahrenheit. So... Obviously, those who have contributed the most to the problem are not necessarily the ones who are the most likely to be experiencing the problems. I have to admit, in reading this, it also reminded me of you know, COVID and COVID lockdowns and mm-hmm. the unequal distribution of the impact of things like lockdowns and, and stay-at-home orders. So it's not particularly surprising, but it is devastating. And so seems like something that we wanted to talk about further. They also make the point that countries with less wealth are also more likely to be closer to the equator and also uh, have more more poverty and fewer resources to adapt. So they are already in a position where they are more likely to experience the impacts of, of a warming climate, but have less resources to be able to, to, to deal with it. And as we also noted here in the United States, the, there was a Supreme Court ruling today that 
that hamstrings the ability of the United States government to regulate a lot of these climate changing pollutants. So the question is, I mean, what if we do if, if we do nothing, what are we looking at over the next 10 to 15, 20 years? Is it is it a, a hopeless situation where, you know, those of us who live in places where we can mitigate the impacts are going to do much better than other places? And if that's the case, what what should we be doing? I feel like, yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but I, I, I feel like one of the fascinating things from this short piece was this, they termed it the paradox that countries mm-hmm. that are able to adapt to climate change or mitigate the effects are the ones that have gone through this high emission industrialization mm-hmm. process mm-hmm. that led, and it's in and of itself causes climate change. Causes right? climate change right. and presumably are in a position to be able to mitigate it because of exactly. the climate the pollution that exactly. they did, that the right. wealth which created that they, the wealth, which leads to the ability to mitigate. Right. right. And so we're kind of left in the end with this paradox of countries that have not yet gone through this high polluting industrialization phase are the least able right. to adapt and to mitigate the effect of climate. And then you have this kind of almost double, triple whammy. Yes, exactly. And I think that this is a really interesting concept because consistently in the negotiations that happen at the intergovernmental level around how do we resolve this issue, this huge crisis of climate change, the concept that gets tossed around is do we go on a per capita emissions basis or do we go on a gross emissions basis? Because once again, you know, the population of India right now is over a billion people. And so on a per capita basis, the emissions aren't that large, but as you incrementally add each of those one point something billion people together, the overall amount of emissions coming out of India and other populated parts of the world that haven't had a chance to industrialize yet or are in the process of doing so is huge. But still on a per capita basis, the U.S. is by far the largest emitter of these climate forcing compounds. And so, you know, having this this discussion, the paradox comes up in a couple of different ways, right? So the people who are the most vulnerable to the adverse effects of climate change are not the ones who have benefited from the anthropogenic activities that have created the climate change. And also the people who are currently have the capacity to adapt and to try and mitigate some of the impacts of climate are are the ones who benefit the most and who experience the most wealth in today's society from the activities that have caused this issue. And so I don't know that I necessarily have the right answer. I think, you know, we, we definitely need to do something, you know, and, and, you know, you mentioned earlier, what should we be doing? What are we facing in the next 10, 15, 20 years? And one of the things that I think, you know, those of us who are now working here in BU at the center, the new center for climate and health is that we've acknowledged that climate change is not a potential future threat. Climate change is something that's happening now. We see the impacts of more frequent extreme events, more severe extreme events, and we're seeing the mortality implications, such as the paper that we just went through. We're seeing a host of physical and mental health outcomes that are associated with climate exposures. So there are things that we can do currently to try and intervene and reduce some of the burden of disease that's associated with these extreme climate events. And and of those things that we could do, what do you think are the most promising and what are the most likely to actually happen? 
So I think that's a great question. And one of the complexities, again, going back to a discussion that we had in the previous segment is what is climate exposure? Mm. So one of the most relevant ones that we think about is extreme heat. That's the basis of this article, this short article. We have heat waves that happen here in the US. This isn't just something that's happening in India. And actually this year, I think there have been major heat waves. Of course, in the Southern hemisphere, the heat season is in the, what we think of as the winter time. So December, January. So there was a huge heat wave in Australia Mm -hmm. and January. January, heat waves happening in Argentina. There was a huge one earlier this year. Brazil experienced extreme heat. Right now, I believe there's an ongoing heat wave in the Midwest and Pacific Northwest of the US. Um, A couple of weeks ago, there was one happening in Western Europe. So this is not something that's also very distant from us. So when you're talking about extreme heat exposure, we know that there are a couple of different things that work really well to try and reduce the, the adverse health impacts of extreme heat. So we have heat adaptation plans that have been implemented by cities. They're focused on identifying those who are the most vulnerable and providing them with access to resources that can help them during these extreme heat periods. So some of the things are access to cooling centers. We know that air conditioning is one of the best ways to reduce people's heat exposure, for example. But even here in the city of Boston, the Boston Climate Adaptation Plan includes sustainable development, green spaces. It includes access to cooling centers. It includes a whole host of resources that are designed to reduce the health impacts of climate. And that's happening in in cities all across the U.S. In a global health context, in places like India, where they're describing these extreme heat wave events of this summer, you can't do some of the same activities because you can't tell very vulnerable low-income populations to go to a place that has air conditioning. They may not have the electricity capabilities to provide consistent access to air conditioning or the places that do have air conditioning might be too expensive for those folks to be able to access them. So it's things like providing clean drinking water and, and freely accessible drinking water in public places. It's also things like increasing access to urban green spaces because we know that green space is one of the mitigating factors in, in an urban heat island. So instead of saying, go to the nearest shopping mall or go to the nearest movie theater, you might tell them to go to the nearest park, go to the nearest waterfront area and, mm-hmm. and cool off in, in that way. And then the other thing that I think works very consistently, regardless of your global health context or regardless of your community, is relying on those community bonds. So making sure that we're checking in on our loved ones, our neighbors, that we're, we're taking care of each other as members of a community, because the best way to make sure that people are, are okay is to you know check in on the elderly when it's an extreme heat wave period and you know that your neighbor is living in a non-air conditioned place. So relying on word of mouth and spreading the information that way is, is very relevant. And I think the last one that I want to mention is that one of the reasons why I've been very excited to see more of these clinical journals that have these types of papers focused on climate and health is because I think that we have a lot of buy-in from clinicians who have recognized that these climate exposures are very relevant and very important for their patients. And so providing the collaboration between climate and health specialists and clinicians who are interested in climate exposures and the impacts for their patients is really important because then those clinicians can be on the lookout for the signs and symptoms of extreme weather exposure. It seems like there is a lot we can do both to try to prevent the extremes of what's already happening, getting worse, but also, as you say, mitigating it. And I, part of why I was interested in the last study, uh, the idea of doing that at a, a, an individual level 
is it would be really helpful to see what the what the mitigating factors are. In other words, what are the things that people could do to mitigate the impacts? And you could do that for hurricanes and cyclones, but you could also do that for for heat events. You could do that for you know pretty much anything. And I think that would provide us with some really useful information. Mm-hmm. I was I just as a, a side comment, I was struck by your comment, Matt, earlier, and it was mentioned also in the article, kind of thinking about COVID and lockdowns mm-hmm. and kind of what is there anything in this experience that we've lived through over the last couple of years with COVID that can help us as we continue to prepare for 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 climate change? And I think I mean there is obviously the parallel that that the lockdowns had the worst effect on people who were the most socioeconomically vulnerable, mm-hmm. who would lose their jobs if you could not actually go to work, while many people were able to to work from home and kind of more or less continue their lives while remaining protected from COVID, and other people were not to their detriment. And I think that that's one parallel. And I also was struck, as Amruta was just talking about, kind of community responsibility that is a, there, there is learning in there from COVID as well as we think about vaccination and we think about uh, messaging about how to increase vaccination uptake. That one of the core messages was do it for the community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even if it's not going to benefit you, do it for the community. Mm-hmm. And it, it did not work mm-hmm. equally. I mean, it, it, it didn't work that like that line mm-hmm. of messaging didn't work as well. Mm-hmm. And I think when we think about climate and the community, quote unquote, is global. Mm-hmm where your actions in the United States are affecting people right now mm-hmm. in other parts of the world, it's a hard sell. And, you know, if it's even hard to make it, you know, in your, mm-hmm. in your smaller community, I think the global community is very difficult. And so I was just, I was thinking about that as we were thinking yeah. about these potential strategies to increase awareness and right. there's real challenges there. I think that's right. But, you know, one of the things that I want to just mention is that in my experience and, you know, I've spent time in the field, I've spent time going out and measuring air pollution exposures and and measuring heat exposures and talking to different community members, whether it's in the U.S. or whether it's in India and other contexts. But people understand what's happening and people understand it in a different way than we might be talking about it as epidemiologists or as environmental scientists, but they do understand that there is something that's happening that is adversely impacting their health. And I think we don't have to go to those global communities to find those effects. We can, we can talk to people. And, and I do agree with you. I think that it's, it's much easier to bring it down to the level of discussions about the impacts that you, you and your neighbors are feeling as a result of these climate exposures. And maybe it's about having that discussion and having that conversation in a context that people understand it's a global a global crisis that has very local implications and i think that's the key and the other thing that i wanted to mention sorry going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the parallels with covid i think another thing that's really important is in terms of the vulnerability issue and aspect that we were talking about is that climate exposures don't happen in isolation mm. you know you might be only impacted by a hurricane or you might be impacted by a hurricane that's happening during a heat wave or during a summer period that's very hot and there might also be a drought in your community and so you know one of these things that we need to think about in addition to some of the excellent points that you've already mentioned is that one of the issues during COVID was that, you know, we were facing things like people being in lockdowns during extreme summertime periods. And we were facing, you know, the interactions between different types of relevant exposures. And I think it was the added burden of all of these additional things that people were thinking about during the COVID lockdowns and then during the times when people were going about 
during COVID. And so I think, you know, one of the, one of the points that I just wanted to mention is that climate is really a multi-hazard issue. It's a really good point. And I mean, we had, as you said, I mean, we had hurricanes and cyclones during COVID, mm-hmm. which required people to go to shelters right. where they were then having to live in close contact with, with other, other people, people, you know, increasing the risk of, of COVID transmission. Exactly. So it, it affects, it affects just about everything related to health and well being. So, mm-hmm. all right. I think that's a, that's a good place to, to leave it, but I find that a really interesting conversation and, and you've given me some hope, which I think is not what I expected at the end of this conversation. So I'm really, <laughs> really pleased by that. So let's move on to our, our last segment, which is our amazing music. And I'm going to go first this time because what I want to talk about is the impact factor. So for anyone who doesn't know, the impact factor is one not great, but very often used measure of the quality of a journal or the impact of a journal. And it's essentially the the number of citations that each article gets on average over a, you know, a couple of year period. And, you know, it's one of those things that academics use to decide which are the really important and, and good journals to publish in. And it unfortunately gets used. Well, unfortunately, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but it's, we know it's, it's a problematic metric that gets used to determine things like promotion. So it's a, it's a, it's a controversial measure. In particular, it's controversial because it's an average measure and it's a, a measure that's very non-normally distributed. So the, just because you publish in a journal that has a high impact factor, your article may only get two citations, but you know, the, on average, you get to 30 because there's a couple articles that get a thousand citations. <laughs> so it's, it's, not a, it's not a great metric. But the reason I bring it up is there was this article in Retraction Watch it's not an article about retractions at all, though, but they were just pointing out the fact that for the the journal citation measures, the impact factors have been released for 2022. And for the first time, the Lancet surpassed the New England Journal of Medicine as the top medical journal. Wow. But not only has it surpassed it, it went from, and I got to get the actual numbers here, but it went from last year at 79.3. So the in other words, the average article getting seven, you know, roughly 80 citations to 202 in 2022. New England Journal of Medicine also went up from 91 to 176, but Lancet went up even more. And in fact, if you look, all of the medical journals are actually going up. Partly that's because there's more publications, but the biggest reason is COVID. Mm-hmm. That there has just been so much focus on COVID that Lancet getting a lot of, you know, COVID publications that end up getting a lot of citations for from other COVID related papers mm-hmm. has just inflated the entire field mm-hmm. to the point where, you know, like, is it really even plausible that, that they've doubled in their impact in <laughs> one year? I mean, clearly it's, it's not, but I, I so I'm curious what's going to happen next and whether Next year, things are going to come back down to to normal or maybe two years from now and New England Journal goes back above or, but I'm also curious what it's going to do to the entire field. So Mm -hmm. my point, my only interest in this article is in the fact that COVID is clearly distorting all of the metrics that we use for thinking about quality impact and also, you know, thinking about promotion for, Mm -hmm. you know, academic faculty. So I just thought it was a, a really interesting 
tidbit. Well, it also brings up the issue. I know just from environmental health, from in in our discipline, a lot of people jumped into COVID to do work in Mm -hmm. COVID that didn't work in infectious disease before. Yeah. Yeah. And and kind of shifted, you know, given that resource, you know, your time is finite. Mm -hmm. And so however many public, you know, publications they would have had during the pandemic, maybe they were all about COVID Mm -hmm. instead of being about their climate change or their original air pollution Mm -hmm. topic or whatever it was. But then at at some point that will shift back. Yeah. Because you'd think the journals in our field then would have the relative decrease yeah. <laughs> in articles published and then would suffer. An well, impact articles impact published in. doesn't doesn't necessarily matter so much as citations. The citations, citations. But still, if fewer if people are right, writing, if, then there may be right, fewer citations. Right, right. But yeah. interestingly, the Journal of Exposure Science and Environmental Epi announced an increase in their impact factor as well. And so now it's DHP, not, it, yeah, right. it's not from 79 to 202, <laughs> but I mean, it's still up, you know, if you look at it in the relative terms, it's still in a pretty field, high jump. That's significant. Yeah. Yeah. In, in relative <laughs> terms, though, that's yeah. exactly it. I mean, right, I saw right. somebody who was, who was tweeting about this saying, you know, even if you look at impact fact journals with impact factors of one going up to are two often going up to two and, huge. and you know that's a that's a huge change for mm-hmm. them and it's just i don't know it'll be interesting to see what's going to happen next mm-hmm. so. that's interesting yep. that's interesting Amrita, what do you got so i have speaking of the new england journal of medicine mm-hmm. there is a new fossil fuel pollution and climate change new england journal of medicine group series so the the NEJM group of publications has committed to publishing one article about climate change and impacts on health per month for the upcoming year and hopefully that will continue into the future and i find this really exciting going off of the conversation that we yeah. were having earlier i think this indicates the large and growing clinical interest in the health implications of climate. And so I'm super excited about that. I hope that everybody listening will take the opportunity to go and check out some of the excellent articles that have already been published, including one this month in the New England Journal that is a systematic review, an overview of studies looking at climate change impacts on children's health. That was uh, one of the co-authors is Frederica Pereira from the Children's Environmental Health Center at Columbia University. So I think that's a fantastic article. But I hope that people will also take it as an opportunity to submit their own work to the New England Journal of Medicine. I think it's a really great way to get more publicity and more dialogue and discussion with clinicians around this issue of climate change impacts on health. And so I'm really excited about it. And I hope it provides space for a lot of up and coming researchers and researchers in the field of climate and health. So when you propose this idea, my first question was, why, why is this only happening now? You know, this is something that very clearly impacts people's health in a, in a, you know, on a, again, in a way that you can detect it at a, at a population level, right? We're not talking about, you know, a, a, a small study with a targeted intervention where you can pick up an effect. We're talking about all, you know, all cause mortality type effects, which, mm-hmm. you know, affects everyone. Why, why is it just now that we're suddenly saying this rises to the level of, of New England Journal of Medicine committing to publishing papers? I don't know the answer to that question. I have a suspicion. I mean, and this was, I didn't say this in regard to Robbie Parks's article, but I think research that documents these implications in the United States are, are viewed as more relevant of being published in the New England Journal and JAMA. I think that was in part, it's not the entire novelty of Robbie's, I mean, there was, it was a great paper, but I think the fact that it was focused on U.S.-based populations mm-hmm. I think there's a bias in these sure. journals, and and mm-hmm. I, I think I think as more as there's more and more research led by Amruta and others in this field to kind of document the implications and the vulnerabilities in the United States, it grabs the attention mm-hmm. of these high impact journals. 
and then they commit to it. And I think that that ultimately is for the better because then it highlights issues around the world yeah. if they open up these channels for people to submit particularly themed right. articles, right. Um, which is which is wonderful. But I think, I mean, it, it, I, to me, it reflected that domestic bias. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe another thing is just that for a long time, we've been grappling with so many questions around, you know, how do we even start to approach this research agenda? I think there's been a lot of exploratory analyses and there's been a lot of, okay, so what is what is exposure to a heat wave? What is exposure to a hurricane? And these are not these are not things that are recent. You know, these are things that my advisor and you know my my postdoctoral advisor, my PhD advisor, my master's advisor before Pat Kinney, who's in our environmental health department here at BUSPH. These are questions that people have been thinking about for the last twenty years. So I think that now that we've started to kind of agree as a field about how we the best practices for doing this type of work. And we're able to leverage large data sets so that we can look at communities across the U.S. And, you know, as Jessica was saying, we can highlight that there are, in fact, implications of climate change in the U.S. I think that is a really good point, And that might be why it's come to the attention of the larger clinical journals. I, I think all of that is true. I mean, I think the availability of data that mm-hmm. we didn't used to have access to, that you could look at a lot of these these measures more easily. But I also think that, you know, it also has to do with the fact that it's not a biomedical intervention type thing that the New England Journal of Medicine loves. So mm-hmm. I, I think it was a lot of different reasons. So really interesting. Jess, what do you got? I have. So this is something a little bit lighter, I guess, but oh, kind good. of fun. <laughs> we, we need that. Yeah. Because it's also, I know our, our our listeners are not here. It's really hot in here. Oh my gosh. I am <laughs> very warm. Air conditioning in our up. building. We're talking about air conditioning. <laughs> it's pretty hot. So so I found this piece. This was just online. This was in the Science News website. As we were thinking about climate and, you know, some of my research going going way back has to do with industrial meat production, industrial food animal production. And my work focused on the disease implications, the zoonotic disease. But there's a lot of environmental implications of, of food and, and meat production. And so I was thinking about in the context of climate, what are foods that might be considered sustainable from mm-hmm. a climate change perspective and how tasty might these foods be to <laughs> our palates? And so I was going to, to to highlight some of these. These are the top six foods that are going to become more popular. Be- be- and environmentally become more popular because, because they are Because they can be grown more easily in the in a, in a changed environment. Okay? okay. So I'm going to see what, okay. what the group of you think about please this. Please say Oreos. Please say Oreos. <laughs> Okay, number one, millet. Okay. And did you know, millet, millet, I didn't even, I did not know this. The UN has declared that 2023 is the international year of millet. Oh, oh, in my (laughs) house, that's, you know, we celebrate (laughs) that every day. This is big. Quinoa had that honor in Mm. 2013. Wait, quinoa, but quinoa is not environmentally easy to grow, is it? I don't I don't know about that, but they're saying that that millet is much more climate resilient than okay. wheat, maize, and rice. It needs little water and thrives in warm, dry environments. Hmm. So can, can you make pizza out of millet? It is an ancient grain. I don't know, but you can turn it into beer, they're saying. Oh, that's good. So that's well, something. there you go. That's something. Okay, yeah. so millet is number one. The Bambara groundnut. I have not heard of that. This is some sort of legume. um, And an understanding, this is something that I think is grown in Malaysia. I think that's what they're saying, that it could be something that could be either an alternative to coffee or an alternative to to like an almond milk, that you could make a milk from this sort of 
much. I'm a it's very skeptical about the coffee coffee alternative. I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, high yield and drought tolerant. <laughs> there you go. Okay, muscles. That's another yes. one. I think yes. Muscles. Okay, okay muscles. I can get. I can get on board. Muscles. With that. Muscles. We understand because they're you know the filtering bivalves yeah. and they filter water very hardy. I remember I did a, a research study when I was in like third or fourth grade on muscles and I was so disgusted because they just you know absorb yeah. like all of the everything all, everything from the water and then you just pop them in. But yep. muscles but are there. Good. Kelp. Mm-hmm. We have kelp and another one because it is okay. resistant okay. to, I, I think, chemicals in drinking water. Here's one I don't even know called Enset. En- no. It never looks heard of that. like it, it's, called, it's called the false banana. This is a, <laughs> it's a drought tolerant plant cultivated in Ethiopia that looks like a banana plant. It re- resembles the, the banana tree, although the fruit is inedible. Mm. So the false banana, and it's called the tree against hunger because you can eat the starchy stems, can be harvested at any time of year, making it a reliable buffer food during dry periods and famine. Okay. Um, okay, so NSET, the false banana. The last one is cassava, which is yeah. the starchy potato. Cassava, yeah. I'm on board with. We've had yeah. before. We've had more. So anyway, so we might be seeing some more of these items coming into grocery stores near us in the environment of climate change. I'm 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 skeptical about some of those, but some of them I'm on board with. Until they invent the false Oreo, I'm, <laughs> I'm not. Not sure I'm there. <laughs> All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback for this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you could tweet us at, at @pophealthex, or you can tweet me at, at @prophmadfox. Jess still doesn't have a, a a Twitter available. Amrutha, do you have a, a Twitter? Yes, I do. It's a sans reason. There we go. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound editing and today video. Well done, Nick. Nice job, Thank Nick. you. He's got, for, he's got like all these cameras in front of us. It's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Are you? Is there any chance you could do like the Matrix thing where you spin around <laughs> and you're frozen in midair? All right. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed it. And we hope you will download our next episode.